episode 85, How to Keep the Main Thing the Main Thing when it comes to preventing readmissions. Dr. Andre Ostrovsky from Carrot Hand, Lens Focus. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Get ready. I'm going to quote Stephen R. Covey. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's especially true in healthcare, where it's really easy to lose the knowledge in the information and for our clarity of purpose to get really fuzzy. For example, it's very easy to lose the main thing when pursuit of business incentives and pursuit of better care require two entirely different maps. Or if your goal to prevent readmissions gets lost in rambling data collection. Dr. Andre Ostrovsky, CEO over at Carrot Hand, weighs in on quality measures versus adding CPT codes, aging in place, predictive analytics, population health management, and also, someone has finally noticed my hip-hop talent. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Andre. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about care at hand before we get into some other very interesting topics about long-term care, which I am delighted to speak to you about. What's the basic idea behind care at hand? The approach we took was building a technology that predicts hospitalization risk. And what was unique about our approach is that we didn't want to rely on claims data or EHR data. We Rather, we wanted to rely on assets that were already in the field, staff, care team members already interacting with patients and people. So we thought maybe if we could capture the observations of these non-medical staff and translate them into clinically relevant signal, then we may be able to do risk prediction in a fundamentally different and much more granular way. What you're basically doing is building a platform so that community health workers, people out in the field actually interacting with individuals, not in an inpatient setting, but on a day-to-day basis, the people that are actually out there and in a place to observe what's going on are the ones that are recording data, which can then be used for predictive analytics. That's a great paraphrase. And one caveat that I would add is that community health workers aren't as ubiquitously used in the United States as they could be. And the more likely use case of our technology is actually not in the hands of a full-fledged community health worker, but rather in the hands of someone like a home care worker or a home health aide. Comparable care team members who also, like community health workers, are not clinically trained. They're not a doctor or a nurse. They're relatively low cost, but they're out there. They're interacting with the person. They're having much more frequent touch points with the person than the doctor, and they're a whole lot less expensive than the doctors. Could be community health workers. Very commonly, it's actually home care workers. What's the difference? What is a community health worker? Just nationally in the United States, there's about nine or 10 different definitions and criteria for what it means to be a certified community health worker. In a nutshell, it's essentially a layperson that is trained in education and some aspects of care coordination, and they help the consumer or patient navigate the health system and remain as healthy as possible. 
basically what you're saying is that there are just two kind of tiers maybe of lay people, one of them which has special training and the other one that's more on the worker functional get things done level. Yeah, it's kind of like that. I think even on a more basic level, the main difference between a home care worker and a community health worker is that a home care worker will typically help a consumer with their activities of daily living. A community health worker tends to be less focused on helping with activities of daily living and more focused on education around someone's condition or disease, helping to navigate the healthcare system, things like that. There's a lot of overlap. Now, you said that community health workers were not super prevalent in the United States. Based on what you're saying, it sounds to me like more are needed. <laughs> yeah, that is an understatement. Do you feel that this is a major barrier, the lack of community health workers to better aging or transforming the healthcare system into a place that's better able to meet the needs of seniors? I don't think it's a barrier in the sense that the lack of community health workers is the problem. We could mobilize and train literally millions of community health workers by repurposing other direct care workers like home care workers or personal care attendants, home health aides. Uber drivers can be community health workers. I mean, we, we have millions and millions of people in the workforce and that don't have a job, frankly, that could be community health workers. I think the real barrier comes down to where healthcare financing is, and is there a pressure to improve outcomes at the lowest cost possible? And fortunately for all of us, including patients, that pressure now exists in full force. And most notably, the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, MACRA, that has created probably the biggest groundswell to change the behavior of providers and what they're investing in. I think we're going to see a whole lot more investment in delivery models using community health workers in 2016 and definitely in 2017. Let's talk about that, the oft-repeated 2016 prediction that hospitals and payers are going to shift in large part to value-based care in anticipation of the 2017 mandate that they do so. How do you see that playing out? Based on what you're just saying, it would seem like it's in full force. Discuss. That's, uh, I could get going for a while on that, but I'll try to be concise. So the Affordable Care Act is really what set the stage for a shift in how healthcare is paid for. It created a lot of the thrust behind the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. And CMMI has been doing basically a bunch of demonstrations, which has been really cool because there's a lot of money behind it, allowing for really high-level systems-wide changes to occur, things like ACOs, things like bundled payments. And then MACRA came along. And what MACRA did was MACRA took reimbursement change to a whole nother level. It went from just this really powerful, but frankly, just cute demonstration phase to saying, by law, in 2016, 30% of the 505 billion dollars of Medicare spending has to be tied into alternative payment models. And then by 2018, it's up to 50%. Alternative payment models being these creative mechanisms of payment for healthcare that are not fee-for-service, so more throughput means more money for the hospital, but rather it's pay-for-value. So basically, hospitals stand to make more money 
keeping patients out. There's those, and then there's several other legislative and regulatory vehicles that bolster what the Affordable Care Act laid as a foundation and what MACRA now is taking to the next level. But those are the two that now have created this shift, not just on the surface of people talking about readmission reduction or people talking about population health management. Hospital CFOs are actually making investments now in keeping patients out of the hospital, which is pretty exciting. Do you feel like the industry is moving forward in a way that is going to, I mean, because Care at Hand really works with these very vulnerable patient populations. How do you feel it's going here? In 2016, 2017, we've got 30% up to 50% in 2018, which still is a fair amount of FFS. Did you feel that the investments are being made in such a way that people will be well cared for that you see? Sort of. <laughs> I, I think it's happening much more than it ever has before. And as an entrepreneur, I can tell you that my sales team, about middle of last year, middle of 2015, it was the first time that when we're meeting every week for our sales team huddle, we're not getting the, you know, dropping our forehead into our hands and just taking a deep sigh and saying, when will they get it? Mid-2015, we, we kind of stopped doing that. The hospital leadership that we were selling into and, and also post-acute care providers as well, they got it. It's not a, We don't have to convince them anymore that they have a problem. We don't have to convince them that they should be making some kind of investments in keeping patients out of the hospital. The challenge now becomes, well, there's so many care coordination platforms and so many predictive analytics tools, and that's just technology. That's not even talking about like delivery model innovation. Now hospital leaders have to decide, well, which ones are real? <laughs> we can be really good salespeople and marketers and pitch a good story, but who actually has peer-reviewed evidence that shows this works? Or where doesn't it work? Where are findings generalizable? Where are limitations? So I think we've entered a completely new space of entrepreneurship and digital health, and even more broadly, just systems innovation. We're now at a point where there's a, a real problem to be solved. There's money behind it. Now it's a matter of who can show that there's evidence behind what they do. What advice do you have for CEOs or CFOs to make those decisions, especially because there really isn't very much evidence basis here? especially I'm putting myself in into the, the shoes of a, a hospital CEO or CFO now. All of a sudden, my goal always used to be, let's be very efficient in the hospital maybe. You know, if I'm a, a CFO, let's figure out how to cut costs. Let's figure out how to do the things, as you said, which are going to net better FFS or do better business in, in a pay-for-volume environment. Now, all of a sudden, I'm being asked to get into a whole new area, which is basically be very productive and efficient outside of the four walls. You're right. I have a lot of advice for hospital leadership. I think hospital leadership is under a lot of pressure right now. And realistically speaking, the attention span of the decision makers making these types of investment is really limited and it's not their fault. They have a lot to do. So I think it's really the burden is on the shoulders of the entrepreneurs to be able to articulate their value proposition and do so in a way that's candid and do so in a way that demonstrates where are reproducible findings that have been proven in a peer-reviewed setting and then what are the real limitations. Not every technology is going to solve every problem, which brings me to my kind of next point. We entrepreneurs have to be able to work with one another, especially on the technology side. Integration and interoperability now, technologically speaking, 
is not a rate limiting step. It's, it's actually incredibly easy to integrate. And as technologists, we need to work together and offer hospital leaders the opportunity to plug and play whatever solutions they want so that they get the best of breed and not have to worry about some clunky interfaces interacting with other clunky interfaces. We, we live in a world where APIs drive everything and my solution and another care management solution and then a patient portal should all feel seamless. And, and in fact, we've already done it. We do it. Our colleagues do it. It's, it's easy. So I would say it's not on the shoulders really of the hospital leaders. They're the customer. It's their choice to kind of choose what's easiest and most productive for them. I think it's on our shoulders as entrepreneurs to prove our worth through evidence, integrate and integrate seamlessly and always have a sensitivity to the consumer or patient experience, even though we may be selling B2B. We always have to have the consumer or the patient in mind as if it's a loved one. And I think between those things, like we entrepreneurs will, will figure out creative business models. Those are probably some of the things that we could do to catalyze this moving forward. I was at a conference. Oh, it must have been a year and a half ago now. <laughs> but there was one moment that struck me, which is relevant to what you're saying. It was a panel discussion. And at the far end of the table was a hospital CEO and a CFO. And then there was a representative from Epic and somebody from Cerner, a couple of other people. And at the very, very, very end of the table was a tech entrepreneur that had worked on a very interesting and very successful pilot with the institution that was what the panel was convened to discuss. He was all the way down there at the end. In fact, he barely, he was like half off the table. You know, he had the kind of one elbow <laughs> on the table and one elbow off the table. And there was a whole discussion that transpired on kind of the other side of the table away from him. And then finally, someone directed a question to him and he piped up and he said, you know, this conversation is very metaphorical. This feels very similar to my place within the technology continuum and within the care continuum within this hospital. I'm kind of half at the table. I sort of I, I get a trickle of information and it's very difficult to be a full collaborator and integrate within an environment where I'm kind of half off of the table. So I could see that these big players are the ones that are probably have the most vested interest in keeping potential disruptors out of the technology continuum. But at the same time, unless they do, it's very difficult for someone with half a seat at the table to really make much of a difference. Yeah, I, I think that's a keen observation. And I've seen some interesting movement in the space amongst these big guys, so to speak. I think EHR vendors hold a lot of leverage and their leverage will go away pretty soon, which I'm really excited about. So I'll address that briefly and I'll address then what some pretty progressive EHR vendors are doing. I think this the whole notion of an EHR determining the fate of a technology landscape within a provider organization, that day will go away soon because meaningful use is wrapping up. And so this massive bolus of money that funded the EHR industry, it's winding down. In fact, the future of Meaningful Use 3 is completely in limbo. I think it's a good limbo because the shift is now from checkboxes technology use to what is the technology use actually accomplishing. And I, I really commend ONC leadership for thinking this way. Either way, whether meaningful use exists in its current incarnation or not, EHRs will have less and less money now to play with. And so 
they actually have to prove their worth beyond just getting doctors off of paper. Their worth is going to come basically in the form of, are you going to improve efficiency? Are you going to improve outcomes? And or are you going to improve the patient experience? EHRs are not really great innovators. They're massive bureaucracies that don't move too quickly. So unless EHRs invest in partnering with the disruptors, they're going to lose. And I think a great example is what Athena is doing. So Athena, Jonathan Bush is pretty outspoken and, and he, he's pretty controversial. And he's awesome because here's a guy who's like willing to blow up healthcare. And that's, that's I think there's, you have to be a little bit more sensitive sometimes to, to like say that you blow up healthcare and flip it upside down. But that's the right way to think. You have to think outside of the box. And he's opened up this entire ecosystem of tech entrepreneurs who he's welcomed onto his platform. Uh, and I, I think that's how Athena's going to win the game. I don't mean to say anything negative about Epic or Cerner or the other big guys, but I think you know and the listeners know which of the EHR players tend to be more reluctant than others to play nicely with other technologies. And that's not the way that they're going to win. And granted, now I'm talking about massive companies that are orders of magnitude larger than mine. But from what I'm seeing as an entrepreneur and also as someone in the policy space, that shift has already started. And I, I see the big EHR vendors losing ground very quickly as the traditional funding source for them dries up. So uh, I'm excited for that day. I'm not waiting for it because I think there's a lot of money to be made and a lot of improvements in people's lives to be had well in advance of that. But I am excited probably in the next two to three year time frame to see this notion of epic ruling the world. That will not be the case. What you just said reminds me, and, and maybe this is the reason behind a slide that I saw. I interviewed Troy Trigstad, who is a VP of pharmacy in North Carolina, NCCC. And he popped up a slide in a deck that had a picture of the Grand Canyon. And on one side, he had population health management, population health analytics and predictive analytics. And then on the other side of the Grand Canyon, he put workflow, physician workflow. Uh -huh. And then there's this just lovely picture of the Grand Canyon right in the middle there. Uh -huh. What you just said reminded me of that slide because it might be indicative of mm -hmm. why that chasm is existing and why what you're saying right now might foretell the mm -hmm. future. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a it's a great way to frame things. It's a good, always good to have that kind of visual. One thing I've observed, and this is something that is very much still in flux and something I think we will always have to resolve this tension. I mentioned that a shift is happening around reimbursement. It's still not clear exactly how that shift will happen. And I like to look at policy instruments in two buckets. One is, is a policy vehicle going to introduce uh, financial incentives for achieving the triple aim without constraining creativity and innovation. In other words, alternative payment models, things things in that vein, where here's a bolus of money health system, figure out how to best deliver care, make as much money as you can, and improve outcomes as much as you can. And so you, you have some checks and balances there, but it's generally an outcomes-based incentive model. But then there's another bucket, and it's a bucket that kind of scares me. It's a bucket of more CPT codes, more fee-for-service reimbursement, even if it's for telehealth. And I've seen the industry respond to various telehealth bills with all this enthusiasm and excitement. And yeah, maybe a certain telehealth legislation will 
add more fee-for-service payment for telehealth and our boards and our investors will be excited because we have a little bit more top-line growth. But in reality, I think it's actually a crutch and a limitation to the real potential of telehealth and technology in general in that if we depend on reimbursement codes, we as an industry are not going to be looked at as the go-to investment for making the most money in alternative payment models. And, and I, there's a lot of nuance to that. It's not entirely true, but generally speaking, I would love to see more regulators and legislators making best practice recommendations, quality measures, these types of vehicles to incentivize telehealth use in the context of letting the health system make the investments they need to make, rather than saying, well, here's another CPT code, go use some telemedicine feed. So I think that Grand Canyon is going to remain a pretty big chasm for a while between workflow and the realities of being a provider and then all this stuff that's happening at a population health management level, I think that that chasm will narrow if health systems are given the freedom to invest how they want to invest and different ones are going to invest differently. You know, there's a lot of local nuance between one health system to another. So I'm hopeful that if there are listeners out there that have a, a leaning towards advocacy or policy work or regulatory work to think about that notion. And maybe let's not create more legislation for CPT codes. Rather, let's focus on quality measures that actually reflect the value technology is bringing to the triple aim. That is something to think about. It never actually occurred to me exactly what you're saying, which is the telehealth. And to some extent, there's that advanced directive legislation, you know, of mm-hmm. the, that reimbursement and even the getting paid for with the CCR that recently mm-hmm. came out. Hmm. Let me think about that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, I want to make sure that we get to carrot hand. So carrot hand at this moment in time, I'm thinking is on the one side of the chasm there in the managing population analytics and a little bit less outside integrated into the workflow. But you correct me. I'm excited to say I can't say the details, but some big stuff will be happening in the next 60 days for our company. I, I, be, I can't say a whole lot more than that, but I can say this. Technology is not the solution. As a CEO of a technology company, um, And as a physician, and as having been a patient, technology is not the solution. Processes and people, staff, care team members, those are the building blocks for the solution. Technology can only add onto that and make the processes and staffing models better. And so I've always known that. I'm finally starting to kind of walk the walk, so to speak. And what we found is our growth is going to come through distribution. We're so niche in what we do. I mean, we, we predict risk using non-medical staff. We need non-medical staff to work. So we depend on either other technologies or other providers. And so we have some pretty exciting partnerships that are forming. And what I'm finding is the real home run is not going to come from a technology solution or a type of technology solution. And also the real home run is actually not just going to come from delivery model innovation with staffing, creativity, or, or, or workflow creativity. The real success will come from the full stack. The real success is going to come when the health system has the option to say, I have a ton of money that I'm going to lose if I don't keep people out of the hospital in the first place. Or flip side, I have so much money to make if I keep people in their homes safe and, and well supported. These health systems are not traditionally very well equipped 
to do the technology really well and do the provision of care really well in the community. And so the partnerships that we have emerging are bringing both of those things to bear. They're bringing best-in-class technology, beautifully designed, consumer-focused, but for the enterprise, with the provider network, with the ability to help someone with activities of daily living, or with the ability to help someone get a ride to their grocery store to the doctor. So I can't say a whole lot more than that, but I can say that I think the future is sealed and that this full stack capacity to keep people out of the hospital that is half technology and half provider. And so, you know, maybe we can do another interview in 60 days on on what these partnerships are emerging to look like. But I can tell you that the deal flow is there, our revenue growth is there, and it's about to blow up. That's kind of what's going on here with Care to Hand. It's funny. I'm just going to reiterate what you said earlier about you can't layer technology over a bad process and mm-hmm. and expect it to miraculously change. In fact, I was just telling someone who works for me the other day, if you use technology to make a bad process more efficient, the only thing that happens is you can go horribly wrong much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to talk about care at hand. You said that you use predictive analytics to keep mm-hmm. patients, you know, to, to keep residents in their home or community members in their home. I'm assuming that you've got some kind of platform that the home health aides are mm-hmm. using to keep track of certain core or key metrics or mm-hmm. leading indicators such that they can be fed into your predictive analytics engine such that a hospital can say, whoop, 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 let's invest a little bit more effort on that particular patient because things aren't looking good. Yeah, that hospital exclamation of whoop, whoop, whoop sounds like a rap video I recently listened to. Um, but yeah, that's basically what our <laughs> alerts sound like. It's a whoop, whoop, whoop. You, uh, you summarized it, it. Well, it's even more simple than that. I'll give you maybe a, an antelog. I'll give you a, a corollary to what currently exists and, and how we're tweaking that just a little bit to achieve a lot more value. Right now, there are a lot of survey instruments that have been validated by use by a clinician. Things that measure function, like the SF San Francisco 1236. It's a survey, literally a paper survey. There's PHQ-9, right? It's a, a mental health or depression screen. There are, there's the PAM, the patient activation measure. There's all these measures that basically validated for clinicians to do, and they predict something. And they're pretty narrow in what they predict. Our observation was that in order to, at scale, gather valuable information, we can't rely on clinicians to gather that information, and hence our focus on the non-medical staff. But the other insight we had was a patient isn't always going to fall neatly into a mental health bucket, or a patient isn't always going to fall neatly into a congestive heart failure bucket. And so having an index for mental health or a separate index for congestive heart failure it's pretty narrow-sighted. It doesn't reflect the dynamic nature of risk of going to the hospital. So we thought, all right, if we if we have this like, massive network of sensors vis-a-vis non-medical workers, we were willing to sacrifice some you know, diagnostic ability. In other words, we said, it's okay if we can't actually diagnose people, but as long as we can capture in a pretty sensitive way, if a patient is ever at risk for hospitalization, then we thought that would be pretty interesting technology to, to build. And it's effectively what we've done with the following huge caveat. We can't disrupt workflow. You mentioned it, right? Workflow tends to unfortunately only focus on doctors, but home care workers have workflow. 
home health aides have workflow, community health workers have workflow, and there's always an efficiency pressure. So the last thing we wanted to do was slow down the workers and even more so, we didn't want to jeopardize the therapeutic relationship between the worker and the patient or, or, or the consumer. So from our very first design challenge that we had to overcome three and a half years ago, we actually constrained our survey instrument to no more than 15 questions. We, we proved that after 18 questions on a survey, the predictive validity of this survey actually started to wane pretty badly. And that was partly because of attention span and, and various other, other factors. But we also just didn't want the worker spending all this time on the technology when they should just be spending the time talking to and more importantly, listening to their consumer or patient. So we've from day one been constrained to only 15 questions and to kind of, you know, get, get to your original question or, or point about how does this really work? Within 15 questions, we have to be able to identify hospitalization risk. And so the algorithms we've developed actually pick out from over 2,700 questions in our content library. And so these algorithms, and now there's over now 56 separate algorithms that determine things like syntax, semantics, branch logic, things like that, and pick out out of 2,700 questions, which 15 questions are the right questions to ask for a given person at a given time. And then if the survey responses automatically reach a certain threshold, a nurse gets a notification saying, hey, there's elevated risk. So it's you know text message or email. And then she calls the worker and triages the information and, and basically does what a nurse is capable of doing. So it's super low tech on the surface. It's incredibly high tech in terms of the algorithms and it's very easy to fit into workflow. Where can people learn more information about Care at Hand if they are intrigued? www.careathand.com. And we've got now, the, actually, just a month ago, we, we relaunched our, our website. Um, importantly, I want to draw people's attention to the evidence section of our website. We have publicly available all of the peer-reviewed evidence and all of the studies that are underway, which we're pretty excited about. You know, For the do data dorks out there, I, I encourage you to read the studies. For the providers out there, I encourage you to look at the second to last paragraph of every paper for the limitations. There are limitations to generalizability, but there's probably a lot more value than there is limitations. And all of our contact info is on there as well. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Andre. Thank you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far, there are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.